Hey y'all, welcome to another episode of A Shot Glass of Recovery with your host Julie, half of the dynamic duo that brings you the podcast, Two Sober Chicks. Well, let me take off my damn bracelets. Well, thanks a lot you guys, because I was sitting there minding my business for the last three or four days and I couldn't get you out of my head and I felt guilty that I wasn't doing any of these shot glasses. However, I don't like to do things out of obligation, so I didn't. But now I was just, I had just poured myself some lime Perrier. I had just finished using my light board to draw out another pattern to do a new embroidery work. And I was like, fuck, okay, fine, I'll go do an episode of a shot glass. Because the truth is, I miss you when I don't do it. And you help me by listening as much as I hope I help you by listening back. So I don't really have anything to talk about, so I think we can go into into story time. But let's just look at our trusty language of letting go by Melanie Beattie and see what it says for September. <sighs> Am I drunk? September 4th. I talk too fast. That's the problem. When I start preaching, I'm going to really have to slow down, which is soon, by the way, end of November and end of December. I will have to enunciate correctly. September 4th. Finding direction. Meh. Let's read a story. Okay. I hope you're in bed trying to sleep but can't. And then you can listen to this and go to sleep. I actually looked at our stats the other day, and it turns out most of you listen to me on the way to work. So if you're not in bed and you're listening to me on the way to work, thank you for spending time with me. I'm so excited to be with you. And if you're trying to go to sleep, I hope this story will relax you. Go to sleep, little friend, and know that I'm praying for you. We're going to read a story now. It's called Our Southern Friend. Yay, yay. Okay, the big book. First 165 pages are program. The rest of the book is stories of the first 100 or so people that got sober from AA. This one's called Our Southern Friend. Listen, everyone. I married a Southern man, although some people would not call Nashville Southern. He's fucking Southern, y'all. So hush up before I beat you with some okra. Okay, our Southern friend. Let's pause and have a moment of silence. I'm being serious right now, actually. And we'll say the serenity prayer together. Don't close your eyes if you're driving. Are you fucking kidding me? Do you hear that? That's my pill alarm. Damn it. Hang on. Okay, I'm back. Don't ask me where my pills are, by the way. (laughs) I just had, okay, I just had my place painted. I bought this place. I've been living here for four or five years renting. um, And before that, the two years before that, I was renting and then I was married. So this is my first place on my own ever. And I was lucky enough that I was able to buy it. And so I wanted it to be painted because it was always builder white on all the walls. And so I had it painted. So I thought I was helping the painters who were scheduled for two to three days to move everything into my office from my bedroom, the hallway, the bathrooms, the living room, the kitchen. 
And not only that, I took off all of the light switch plates. I took down the curtain rods. I took everything off the walls, out the nails, like just so when they got here, they could jump right in and not have to worry about all of that other stuff. And then when they came back in day two, I will have cleaned everything out of my office. Well, it turns out they did it in five hours. And everything that I had in my office, they sort of moved all around willy nilly, like, and not in a very respectful manner. So my pills are somewhere. But I do have more because okay, this seems like it's all over the place. I assure you I will circle back. So once I started having to take pills every day, i.e. after my nervous breakdown at the end of last year and I was put on an anxiety and depression medication, I wanted a pill box because I grew up in a household of ladies with pill boxes. So I found this beautiful antique round pill box on Etsy, which sometimes I have a little problem with, meaning sometimes I'm addicted to it. And so I put my daily pills in there. And then the ones that don't fit in there, because it can probably only fit about, I don't know, 20, I keep in the prescription bottle in my cupboard. Well, so I do have pills in my cupboard, but my little round, beautiful antique pillbox is somewhere in this place. And my very well-meaning alarm, I cannot tell you how many times I'm like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll take my pill later. And then I don't remember whether or not I took it. And then I have to like rack my brain and then I get anxiety because I'm like, did I or didn't I take it? So remind me to take my pill in other words. Anyways, okay, now back to story time. Okay. We left off. We're going to take a deep breath and get rid of this energy. Please don't do this. If you're driving, don't close your eyes. But if you're in bed or you're sitting somewhere, close your eyes. We are grounded where we are. Take a deep breath. God, grant us the serenity to accept the things we cannot change, courage to change the things we can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Page 208. Our Southern friend. Hey, y'all, I love you Southerners. Should I read this in a Southern accent? No, because some of you are trying to sleep. Pioneer AA, minister's son, and Southern farmer. He asked, who am I to say there is no God? Father is an Episcopal minister, and his work takes him over long drives on bad roads. His parishioners are limited in number, but his friends are many. For to him, race, creed, or social position makes no difference. This reminds me of a book that my friend Amanda gave me that I can't remember the name of or the minister's name of, but hang on. I'm so sorry. This is the worst storytelling ever. Amanda, what's his name? You're probably screaming it out to me right now. It's one of the best books I ever read, and he's a pastor of... um, churches in West Virginia that he built and no one wanted him to be a pastor there because it was a particularly unruly time back in the days of like abolition and the prohibition movement but he was so wonderful that everyone became his friend and he built churches and he was wonderful and I think his last name starts with a C and now I have to stop again I'm so sorry I gotta go look on my bookshelf if I've lost you I won't know but if you're on your way out I totally understand hang on a minute okay I'm back All right, that's the last time I promise. Even if my dinner starts to burn, fuck it, I'll sacrifice it for you all. This book is called The Man Who Moved a Mountain by Richard C. Davids, and it's about this um, man named Bob Childress. 
And whether you're religious or not, you will love this book. I don't know if you can get it on Amazon because Amanda gave it to me as a gift, but it's one of the best books I ever read. Okay, I'm so sorry. Okay, now we go back. But his friends are many, for to him, race, creed, or social position makes no difference. It is not long before he drives up in the buggy. Good God, this is old. But he and old Maud are oh God. But he and old Maud are glad to get home. The drive was long and cold, but he was thankful for the hot bricks that some thoughtful person had given him for his feet. Soon supper is on the table. Father says grace, which delays my attack on the buckwheat cakes and sausage. Oh my God, sounds so good. Bedtime comes. I climb to my room in the attic. It is cold, so there is no delay. I crawl under a pile of blankets and blow out the candle. When the shit was this written? The wind is rising and howls around the house, but I am safe and warm. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I fall into a dreamless sleep. I'm in church. Father is delivering his sermon. A wasp is crawling up the back of the lady in front of me. I wonder if it will reach her neck. Shucks, it has flown away. At last, the message has been delivered. Let your light shine, so men, let your light... I can't believe this. I am so sorry. <laughs> that is my husband calling me. This is the worst bedtime story ever. Hi, I'm just podcasting. Can I call you back? Oh my gosh, yes, yes. Okay, husband. All right, Bye. I'm so sorry. Okay. Oh, did that stop? <laughs> Worst recording ever. I wouldn't be surprised if you unsubscribed. But if you didn't hear that, I just answered the FaceTime with my husband and told him I'd call him back. And returning to the story. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. I hunt for my nickel to drop in the plate so that mine will be seen. I am in another fellow's room at college. We know how this goes down. Freshman, he said to me, do you ever take a drink? I hesitated. Father had never directly spoken to me about drinking, but he never drank any so far as I knew. Mother hated liquor and feared a drunken man. Her brother had been a drinker and had died in a state hospital for the insane, which I think now are rehabs, to be honest. Not that I'm saying people that go to rehabs are insane, but there was no rehabs back then. They would just send us all to hospitals and sanitariums. But his life was unmentioned, so far as I was concerned. I had never had a drink, but I had seen enough merriment in the boys who were drinking to be interested no comment. I would never be like the village drunkard at home. Well, said the older boy, do you? Once in a while, I lied. I could not let him think I was a sissy. He poured out two drinks. Here's looking at you, said he. I gulped it down and choked. I didn't like it, but I would not say so. A mellow glow, glow stole over me. This wasn't so bad after all. Sure, I'd have another. The glow increased. Other boys came in. My tongue loosened. This is something else. Everyone laughed loudly. I was witty. I had no inferiorities. Why, I wasn't even ashamed of my skinny legs. This was the real thing. 
A haze filled the room. The electric light began to move. Then two bulbs appeared. The faces of the other boys grew dim. How sick I felt. I staggered to the bathroom. Shouldn't have drunk so much or so fast, but I knew how to handle it now. I'd drink like a gentleman after this. And so I met John Barleycorn, the grand fellow who at my call made me hail fellow well meet, who gave me such a fine voice as we sang, hail, hail, the gang's all here, and sweet Adeline, who gave me freedom from fear and feelings of inferiority. Good old John. He was my pal, all right. In case some of you don't know who John Barleycorn is, who I didn't know what that meant either until I went into AA, it's alcohol. It's booze, barley, corn, you know. Final exams of my senior year, and I may somehow graduate. I would never have tried, but mother counts on it so. A case of measles saved me from being kicked out during my sophomore year. But the end is in sight. My last exam and an easy one. I gaze at the board with its questions. Can't remember the answer to the first. I'll try the second. No soap there. I don't seem to remember anything. I concentrate on one of the questions. I don't seem to be able to keep my mind on what I am doing. I get uneasy. If I don't get started soon, I won't have time to finish. No use, I can't think. I leave the room which the honor system allows. I go to my room. I pour out half a tumbler of grain alcohol and fill it with ginger ale. Now back to the exam. My pen moves rapidly. I know enough of the answers to get by. Good old John Barleycorn. He can be depended on. What a wonderful power he has over the mind. He has given me my diploma. Underweight. How I hate that word. Three attempts to enlist in the service and three failures because of being skinny. True, I've recently recovered from pneumonia and have an alibi, but my friends are in the war or going and I am not. I visit a friend who is awaiting orders. The atmosphere of eat, drink, and be merry prevails and I absorb it. I drink a lot every night. I can hold a lot now, more than the others. I am examined for the draft and pass the physical test. I am to go to camp on November 13th. The armistice is signed on the 11th and the draft is called off. Never in the service. The war leaves me with a pair of blankets, a toilet kit, a sweater knit by my sister, and still a greater sense of inferiority. It is 10 o'clock of a Saturday night. I am working hard on the books of a subsidiary company of a large corporation. I have had experience in selling, in collecting, and in accounting, and I am on my way up the ladder. Then the crack up. Cotton struck the skids and collections went cold. A $23 million surplus wiped out. Offices closed up and workers discharged. I and the books of my division have been transferred to the head office. I have no assistance and am working nights, Saturdays, and Sundays. My salary has been cut. My wife and new baby are fortunately staying with relatives. I feel exhausted. The doctor has told me that if I don't give up inside work, I'll have tuberculosis. What? Oh, this dude's luck. I mean, he's had pneumonia and the measles, and now he might get tuberculosis? Jeez. This is a story for our times. But Oh, sorry, sleepers. But what am I to do? I have a family to support and have no time to be looking for another job. I reach for the bottle that I just got from George, the elevator boy. I am a traveling salesman. The day is over and business has been not so good. I'll go to bed. I wish I were home with the family and not in this dingy hotel. 
Well, well, look who's here, good old Charlie. It's great to see him. How's the boy? A drink? You bet your life. We buy a gallon of corn because it is so cheap. Yet I'm fairly steady when I go to bed. Morning comes, I feel horrible. A little drink will put me on my feet. But it takes others to keep me there. I become a teacher in a boys' school. I am happy in my work. I like the boys and we have lots of fun, in class and out. Okay. The doctor bills are heavy and the bank account is low. My wife's parents come to our assistance. I am filled with hurt pride and self-pity. I seem to get no sympathy for my illness and have no appreciation of the love behind the gift. I call the bootlegger and filled up my chard keg, but I do not wait for the chard keg to work. I get drunk. My wife is un extremely unhappy. Her father comes to sit with me. He never says an unkind word. He is a real friend, but I do not appreciate him. I love his perspective. Obviously, in hindsight, as most of us get once we're sober. We are staying with my wife's father. Her mother is in critical condition at a hospital. I cannot sleep. I must get myself together. I sneak downstairs and get a bottle of whiskey from the cellaret. No idea what that word is. I pour drinks down my throat. My father-in-law appears. Have a drink? I ask. He makes no reply and hardly seems to see me. His wife dies that night. Mother has been dying of cancer for a long time. She is near the end now and is in a hospital. I have been drinking a lot but never get drunk. Mother must never know. I see her about to go. I return to the hotel where I am staying and get gin from the bellboy. I drink and go to bed. I take a few the next morning and go see my mother once more. I cannot stand it. I go back to the hotel and get more gin. I drink steadily. I come to at three in the morning. The indescribable torture has me again. How many of us, like, I know this was written a long time ago, but the parallels and the applicability of it to it right now is crazy. I know, I know this story. I turn on the light. I must get out of the room or I shall jump out the window. I walk miles. No use. I go to the hospital where I have made friends with the night superintendent. She puts me to bed and gives me a hypodermic. I'm at the hospital to see my wife. We have another child, but she's not glad to see me. I've been drinking while the baby was arriving. Her father stays with her. It is a cold, bleak day in November. I have fought hard to stop drinking. Each battle has ended in defeat. I tell my wife I cannot stop drinking. She begs me to go to a hospital for alcoholics that has been recommended. Oh, maybe they did have treatment. I think that's rare. I say I will go. She makes the arrangements, but I will not go. I'll do it all myself. This time I'm off of it for good. It'll just take a few beers now and then. It is the last day of the following October, a dark, rainy morning. I come to on a pile of hay in a barn. I look for liquor and can't find any. I wander to a table and drink five bottles of beer. I must get some liquor. Suddenly I feel hopeless, unable to go on. I go home. My wife is in the living room. She had looked for me last evening after I left the car and wandered off into the night. She had looked for me this morning. She has reached the end of her rope. There is no use trying anymore, for there is nothing to try. Don't say anything, I say to her. I'm going to do something. I am in the hospital for alcoholics. I am an alcoholic. The insane asylum lies ahead. Could I have myself locked up at home? One more foolish idea. I might go out west on a ranch where I couldn't get anything to drink. I might do that. 
Another foolish idea. I wish I were dead. As I have often wished before, I am too yellow to kill myself. Four alcoholics play bridge in a smoke-filled room. Anything to get my mind from myself. The game is over and the other three leave. I start to clean up the debris. One man comes back, closing the door behind me. He looks at me. You think you're hopeless, don't you? He asks. I know it, I reply. Well, you're not, says the man. There are men on the streets of New York today who were worse than you, and they don't drink anymore. What are you doing here, then? I ask. I went out of here nine days ago, saying that I was going to be honest, but I wasn't, he answers. A fanatic, I thought to myself, but I was polite. What is it? I inquire. Then he asks me if I believe in a power greater than myself. Whether I call that power God, Allah, Confucius, Prime Cause, ooh, Prime Cause, Divine Mind, or any other name. I told him that I believe in electricity and other forces of nature, but as for God, if there is one, he has never done anything for me. Then he asks me if I am willing to right all the wrongs I have ever done to anyone, no matter how wrong I thought the others were. Am I willing to be honest with myself, about myself, and tell someone about myself? And am I willing to think of other people, of their needs instead of myself, in order to get rid of the drink problem? I'll do anything, I reply. Then all your troubles are over, says the man and leaves the room. Ooh, that gave me chills. The man is in bad mental shape, certainly. I pick up a book and try to read, but I cannot concentrate. I get in bed and turn out the light, but I cannot sleep. Suddenly a thought comes. Can all the worthwhile people I have known be wrong about God? Then I find myself thinking about myself and a few things that I had wanted to forget. I begin to see I am not the person I thought myself, that I had judged myself by comparing myself to others and always to my own advantage. It is a shock. Then comes a thought that is like a voice. Who are you to say there is no God? It rings in my head. I can't get rid of it. I get out of bed and go to the man's room. He is reading. I must ask you a question, I say to the man. How does prayer fit into this thing? Well, he answers, you've probably tried praying like I have. When you've been in a jam, you've said, God, please do this or that. And if it turned out your way, that was the last of it. And if it didn't, you've said, there isn't any God or he doesn't do anything for me. Is that right? Yes, I reply. That isn't the way, he continued. The thing I do is to say, God, here I am and here are all my troubles. I've made a mess of things and can't do anything about it. You take me and all my troubles and do anything you want with me. Does that answer your question? Yes, it does, I answer. I return to bed. It doesn't make sense. Suddenly, I feel a wave of utter hopelessness sweep over me. I am in the bottom of hell. And there... A tremendous hope is born. It might be true. I tumble out of bed onto my knees. I know not what I say, but slowly a great peace comes to me. I feel lifted up. I believe in God. I crawl back into bed and sleep like a child. Some men and women come to visit my friend of the night before. He invites me to meet them. They are a joyous crowd. I have never seen people that joyous before. We talk. I tell them of the peace and that I believe in God. I think of my wife. I must write her. One girl suggests that I phone her. What a wonderful idea. My wife hears my voice and she knows that I have found the answer to life. She comes to New York. I get out of the hospital and we visit some of these newfound friends. I am home again. I have lost the fellowship. Those who understand me are far away. 
The same old problems and worries still surround me. Members of my family annoy me. Nothing seems to be working out right. I am blue and unhappy. Maybe a drink. I put on my hat and dash off in the car. Get into the lives of other people is one thing the fellows in New York had said. I go to see a man I had been asked to visit and tell him my story. I feel much better. I have forgotten about a drink. I'm on a train headed for the city. I have left my wife at home, sick, and I have been unkind to her in leaving. I am very unhappy. Maybe a few drinks when I get to the city will help. A great fear seizes me. I talk to the stranger in the seat beside me. The fear and the insane idea are taken away. Things are not so well at home. I am learning that I cannot have my own way as I used to. I blame my wife and children. Anger possesses me. Anger such as I have never felt before. I will not stand for it. I pack my bag and I leave. I stay with some understanding friends. I see where I have been wrong in some respects. I do not feel angry anymore. I return home and I am sorry for my wrong. I am quiet again. But I have not seen yet that I should do some constructive acts of love without expecting any return. I shall learn this after some more explosions. I am blue again. I want to sell the place and move away. I want to get where I can find some alcoholics to help and where I can have some fellowship. A man calls me on the phone. Will I take a young fellow who has been drinking for two weeks to live with me? Soon I have others who are alcoholics and some have other problems. And some who have other problems. I begin to play God. I feel that I can fix them all. I do not fix anyone, but I am getting part of a tremendous education, and I have made some new friends. Nothing is right. Finances are in bad shape. I must find a way to make some money. The family seems to think of nothing but spending. People annoy me. I try to read. I tried to pray. Gloom surrounds me. Why has God left me? I mope around the house. I will not go out and I will not enter into anything. What is the matter? I cannot understand. I will not be that way. I've highlighted this whole section. I'll get drunk. It is a cold-blooded idea. It is premeditated. I fix up a little apartment over the garage with books and drinking water. I'm going to town to get some liquor and food. I shall not drink until I get back to the apartment. Then I shall lock myself in and read, and as I read, I shall take little drinks at long intervals. I shall get myself mellow and stay that way. I get in the car and drive off. Halfway down the driveway, a thought strikes me. I'll be honest anyway. I'll tell my wife what I am going to do. I back up to the door and go into the house. I call my wife into a room where we can talk privately. I tell her quietly what I intend to do. She says nothing. She does not get excited. She maintains a perfect calm. When I am through speaking, the whole idea has become absurd. Not a trace of fear is in me. I laugh at the insanity of it. We talk of other things. Strength has come from weaknesses. I cannot see the cause of this temptation now, but I am to learn later that it began with my desire for material success becoming greater than my interest in the welfare of my fellow man. I learn more of that foundation stone of character, which is honesty. I learn that when we act upon the highest conception of honesty that is given us, our sense of honesty becomes more acute. Hmm. I learn that when we act upon the highest conception of honesty, which can't come apart from God, that is given us, our sense of honesty becomes more acute. Hmm. I learn that honesty is truth and that truth shall make us free. 
Wow, that was a really good story. Some laughs in there, to be sure, but that was a really good story. That ending part was very powerful for me. It's when we're given honesty, when we're given a higher concept of honesty, and we line up with that honesty, our honesty muscle gets stronger and stronger. So then not only can we detect with increasing rapidity our own dishonesty, but we get to sense it in others too. So I hope you enjoyed story hour. I'm sorry I've effed it up so badly. It's been 28 minutes, so I'm going to say goodbye and goodnight. night.